You're listening to a Women's History Association of Ireland podcast. In this podcast, a paper from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. This online conference took place on four Fridays in March 2021 and was supported by the UCD Decade of Centenaries Fund, UCD School of History, the UCD School of Gender Studies, UCD Centre for Gender Feminisms and Sexualities and the UCD College of Arts and Humanities Fund. This podcast is produced in association with History Hub. To listen to other papers and conference keynotes, go to historyhub.ie. The WHAI conference was organised by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD Gender Studies and Dr Fanula Walsh from UCD School of History. This podcast features a paper from Women as Revolutionaries, which was a UCD Decade of Centenaries funded panel. The first paper in the panel was given by Dr Elaine Callanan from Carlow College. The paper was entitled The Best Feminist Propaganda That Is Being Done Is Being Done by the Mere Fact of Voting Propaganda and Women in Elections from 1918 to 1920. The panel was chaired by Dr Fanula Walsh from UCD. So you're all very welcome to day four of the WHI annual conference um, and the final day um, of our conference. Um, so it's been, it's been a real pleasure um, to be um, co-organising this conference with Mary over the past month. Um, and I think we've had um, really um, wonderful days so far with really strong papers and great discussion. Um, and we're really looking forward to our, to our final day. The first panel this morning um, is focused on women as revolutionaries. And this is a decade of centenaries funded panel. Um, so our first speaker is Dr. Elaine Callanan. Um, Elaine completed her PhD on electioneering and propaganda in Ireland, 1917 to 1920, in Trinity College, Dublin, um, where she was a colleague of mine. She currently lectures in modern Irish history in Carlow College, St. Patrick's. And the focus of her research is to examine how politicians and political parties campaigned on elections in Ireland just before the foundation of the Free State. She's particularly interested in how election campaigns were conducted in an era of political and military upheaval in Ireland, and the legacy of the same of the Free State and on Northern Ireland. She's published various journal articles and book chapters on this topic. And her book, Electioneering and Propaganda in Ireland, 1918 to 1921, Votes, Violence and Victory, was published in 2020 by Four Courts Press. She's going to talk to us today um, on a paper titled The Best Feminist Propaganda That Has Been Done Has Been Done by the Mere Fact of Voting, Propaganda and Women in Elections from 1918 to 1920. So over to you, Elaine. Thank you very much, Fanula, and good morning, everyone. And thanks to both Mary and Fanula and uh, the Women's History Association of Ireland for having me here today. The overall aim of my research was to investigate the electioneering and campaigning of all political parties in Ireland for the election campaigns from 1917 to 1921 across the entire island. The main parties or political movements that contested the 1918 general election were the Constitutional Nationalist Irish Parliamentary Party, the Separatist Nationalist Sinn Féin, Unionists and Labour. Incorporated into my research was an exploration of the role of women as electioneers and candidates. And today, this is what I'm going to talk to you about. And I'm going to focus particularly on the 1918 general election and the 1920 local government elections. In the closing years of the 19th century, those excluded from politics became eligible to stand for elections and to vote. And the Fourth Reform Act, or Representation of the People Act 1918, increased the electorate substantially, including women over the age of 30 years, but still with some property restrictions or qualifications. 
uh, they could now vote in by-elections and general elections. So what was the impact of these new women voters on electioneering propaganda and the outcome of these elections? In November 1918, the Freeman's Journal reported that the women's vote is a new factor in the election campaign. And as it roughly represents from 40 to 50 percent of the electorate, it will exercise an enormous influence on the result of the elections. The Irish Independent stated that in Belfast alone, there were 85,000 women. And in one of the Tipperary divisions, women were half the total electorate. For the local government elections in 1920, the Freeman's Journal claimed that in Londonderry, 40% of the municipal voters were women who are even more enthusiastic in the fight than are the men. In Galway, almost half the poll was composed of women voters. And in Dublin, in some wards, women greatly outnumbered the men. Women could also run as candidates in by-elections and general elections. There was a call by suffragists to see large numbers of women elected and questions as to how this was to be done. Some called for a women's party, while others and the majority saw women standing within their respective parties, be they loyalist or republican, conservative or revolutionary. Common a man wrote to the Sinn Féin Standing Committee to express hope that some women will be selected for parliamentary seats and pointed out that the Republican proclamation made it essential that women stand. The Standing Committee argued that candidate selection resided with the Koharli Cantor and not with themselves. But these appeals indicate that there was no general consensus and opinions differed. In the end, women were not successful in fielding Sinn Féin candidates. And despite common man urgings for women candidates, only two ran in urban constituencies in 1918. Constance Markievicz for the Dublin St. Patrick's Division and Winifred Carney for Belfast's Victoria Division. By 1920, there was a more hardened resolve to forward female candidates for selection in the local government elections. Early and efficient organisation paid off, and as a higher number of women became Sinn Féin councillors and poor law guardians. Selecting women candidates was proved problematic for unionists too, and there was even some confusion among women themselves. The president of the Ulster Women's Unionist Council offered two paths forward. The first called for a fusion of men and women in one association and the other for separate associations united at the top in one joint executive. However, the Ulster Women's Unionist Council failed to initiate a, initiate a definitive programme for selecting and appointing women candidates. Instruction was given to every woman above the age of 30 to ensure she was placed on the register. They were also called to carry out vigorous and persistent propaganda work prior to the election. But there was no specific call to nominate women candidates or to solicit support for potential women candidates, but there was a move towards inclusivity. Labour planned for, but later withdrew from the 1918 election, but their preparatory strategy was devised, so they are worth exploring very briefly in relation to women. Trade union councils were asked whether constituencies in their districts should be contested, what prospects for a local labor, what the prospects for a local labor representative was, and how women voters could be organized and associated with the Labour Party. Labour had nominated the female candidate Helena Maloney, but she refused to run even before the decision was taken not to contest the election. Labour became attentive not only to the voting potential of women, but also to the assistance that could be given by the great hosts of the new voters who have come upon the new register. They acknowledged that our sisters became enfranchised only as the result of many generations of great efforts, as noble sacrifices, as gallant battles as any in the history of these people. So why so few women candidates? 
In constituencies where women candidates ran for election, much of the campaigning was conducted for women by women, with the males propping up male candidates. Hannah Sheehy Skeffington described Markievicz's constituency as the worst managed constituency in Dublin. And the activist Meg Connery remarked that the one woman they have thrown as a sop to the women of the country has her interests neglected. As Margaret Ward points out, although supported by a few prominent men and women, Winifred Carney was marginalised by the press, isolated among the Ulster Unionist Party and Irish Parliamentary Party supporters, and undermined by poor organisation in the local party. Winning only 539 votes, she lost her deposit, declaring with some bitterness, I had neither personation agents, committee rooms, canvassers or vehicles, and these are the chief agents in an election. The organisation in Belfast could have been much, much better. Michael Laffin, in his work, The Resurrection of Ireland, points out that there appeared to have been a disconnect between the Sinn Féin leaders and the rank and file on the role of women members, with the latter being more conservative in this respect. In 1920, Kathleen Clark maintained that while she had been considered for Dublin North City and Limerick City, she was ultimately disregarded in favour of male candidates. Anna Haslam believed that women were withheld by the heavy expense involved in contesting elections. The next questions then are, did political parties solicit women's votes and did propaganda from past ideals and conflicts influence political propaganda? I'll start with the latter first. Ireland, as far back as the 18th century, was described by Gaelic poets and writers as a woman. Mother Ireland, the Shan Van Vught, Kathleen Houlihan, Dark Rosaline and Erin featured heavily in literature, poetry and propaganda into the 20th century. For nationalists and particularly separatist nationalists, Erin personified Ireland in two contrasting modes, a tragic and troubled Erin who awaited a saviour to free her from British oppression or a belligerent and forceful Erin with spear or sword or flag in hand. And the shock in the Guelga poster, while not political, certainly does demonstrate this. Um, you can see it in both images there. And you can see it again in the poster on the far right, which was used in the 1918 election, where, uh, you know, Mother Erin is shackled until you free her by voting Sinn Féin. The late 1800s and early 1900s was a time of consumer consumption change, with department stores such as Arnott's and Cleary's being established in Dublin. Commercial interests began using the Irish peasant female to encourage the purchase of hygiene or luxury products among the working classes. And I'm showing you an image there of Colleen Shampoo from the Brown Soaps Works in County Tyrone. Great War propaganda in Ireland portrayed Ireland as female and used women to encourage enlistment across all the political divides. And in the example poster there, will you answer the call? Ireland is a female in the foreground with long auburn hair and arm resting upon a harp. Mother Erin points upward to employ what Pauline Codd calls the pull factors, such as patriotism or compassion for poor little Belgium. Mothers, wives and daughters endorse the departure of men to defend their honour during the Great War. Sinn Féin appealed to women within their own movement and skillfully appropriated the historic and new methods of consumer and Great War propaganda and seized upon the new franchise qualifications. An example is in one of their pamphlets titled An Appeal to the Women of Ireland. Here many of the Great War themes that exemplified the role of women became those of Irish freedom in election campaigns. It was pointed out that women could save Ireland if they voted in similar fashion to Mrs Pierce in order that the ancient ideal could be realised. 
the grateful voices of the dead now cried out to the women of Ireland to stand by their tortured sister, Rosaline. This objective of using history and Gaelic culture was to entice women to vote with Sinn Féin. The promise of a dynamic future in politics in the line, the women folk of the Gael shall have a high place in the councils of a freed Gaelic nation, was the final attempt to attract women to the Sinn Féin side. Unionists also emulated consumer and Great War themes and, like Sinn Féin, created propaganda directly aimed at women. In 1918, Unionists in all constituencies across Ireland were prodded from within to take steps to provide for close cooperation of men and women in the Unionist organisations. Sobering encouragement went out to women themselves to endeavour to interest other women to see that their voices are registered in the constituency in which they live. Failure to cast a vote was warned against because a very great, great responsibility will soon be placed upon us in the exercising of our vote. Unionists encouraged women to become active politically as canvassers, lobbyists, and supervisors of electoral registers. Propaganda was specifically targeted at women, outlining their role and responsibilities, not only as wives and mothers, but also in relation to church, home, country, and empire. Suffragists encouraged women to use their vote. The Irish Citizen in January 1919 stated that the best feminist propaganda that has been done is being done by the mere fact of voting. Unlike Unionists and Sinn Féin, the Irish Parliamentary Party had neglected to create targeted propaganda to capture the female vote, aside from Joseph Devlin in Belfast, who made specific mention of it, about issues that affected women in this era. The Irish Parliamentary Party had voted against female suffrage during the third home rule crisis because they believed it would bring the Liberal government down with the Conservative and Unionist government taking power. And it was believed that they would never grant home rule to Ireland. The image that I'm showing you here, which I'm sure some of you have seen many times before, uh, from the Irish Citizen newspaper, and long memories by voters meant that these decisions were not forgotten in 1918. The Irish Women's Franchise League at a meeting in 1918 accused Mr Dillon's party of being from the beginning hostile to their league. They reminded that Dylan had previously stated he hoped they, women, would never get the vote as it would mean the disturbing of Western civilization. Most parties called on women to become active in electioneering, particularly in carrying out the door-to-door -door canvas. Women's movements were affiliated to volunteer organizations and congruently to political parties, and they also assisted in election campaigns. These women proved crucial in mobilizing the female vote. As John McCoy stated in his witness statement, young girls were mobilized and worked on the register and on the canvas of the voters enthusiastically. Another nationalist agent complained that such was the industry of the female separatist supporter in 1918 that he had got nothing to eat all day while his wife and daughter had been busily carrying food to Sinn Féin agents. Unionist women were also encouraged to canvass for their candidates, and in a letter from the president of the Ulster Women's Unionist Council to members of the council in 1918, women were reminded that it was the duty of every working woman at the present time to speak out her views with no uncertain voice, and to make sure that when the day of election comes, every woman's vote will be polled in the same way as a man's would be. The total valid votes of December 1918 gave Sinn Féin an overall majority in Ireland's three southern provinces. But if Ulster's results are added, given that this was an all-Ireland election, <laughs> then the claim of a homogenous desire for self-determination does not add up. 
The proportion of votes attained in an All-Ireland context gave Sinn Féin 46.9% of the total vote, Unionist 28.5% and the Irish Parliamentary Party 21.7%. Now, this doesn't take into account the 25 uncontested constituencies. The results of the municipal elections in January 1920 is rather different and shows a variety of opinion across Ireland, with a mixed bag of Sinn Féin, Labour and Nationalists being elected. Now, it's important to point out there was two different voting systems. In 1918, the first past the post method was used, but by 1920, proportional representation had come in. But even under proportional representation, Sinn Féin swept the board in the June Rural District Council elections. But was the female vote powerful in 1918 and in 1920? While there were other factors that affected electoral outcomes in 1918 and 1920, there is some proof that the parties that appeal directly to women in propaganda campaigns secured their votes. Although according to the Irish Citizen in December 1918, women like men have fallen into party ranks, though on the whole they are proving themselves so far less slaves to party than are the men. There is evidence of the high turnout by women in the newspaper reports that consistently commented on their predominance at the polls. For instance, the Irish Times stated that, from all quarters, women voted in large numbers and early in the day. And in Belfast, women also voted in larger numbers than was generally anticipated. The Irish Independent in 1920 declared that a novel feature of the elections was the interest displayed by women in municipal affairs. And they reported that in Dublin, the majority of those who voted were women. In conclusion, Sinn Féin and Ulster Unionists succeeded in convincing the electorate to support their brand of politics throughout these election campaigns, proving that their propaganda methods and content held all the right ingredients to deliver success. Greater numbers of women contested elections in 1920, but in Ulster only three women were elected outside Belfast. In Dublin City, five women were returned, one of them for two seats, and in the townships they fared better, where 12 were returned. Eight of the 12 women elected, uh, represented Sinn Féin, two were unionists and one nationalist and one ratepayer. While there was no real attempt by any party to develop a new feminist politics around women's issues, Sinn Féin, unionists and labour and the women within them, although small in number, defined women as active participants within electoral propaganda and in the political process. The exclusion of women under 30 from the franchise reinforced the ideal of women voters principally as wives and mothers, but that did not eliminate them as canvassers and voters. The Labour Party was in the difficult position of trying to merge the dominance of the masculine in its trade union movements with that of working women, but they too attempted to encourage active participation by women in electioneering. Through the industry of women's electioneering and by targeting propaganda at women voters, Unionists and Sinn Féin gained advantage on polling day in 1918 and again in 1920. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. You can listen to podcasts of keynotes and many other papers from the conference on historyhub.ie.